2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Word of God has to say. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Chapter 13 is the final words, the concluding words of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And as such, he is giving final instructions to the church and final warnings to the church. His final warning can be broken into two parts, confrontation of sin and examining your faith to determine whether or not you have a genuine faith, whether or not you are truly saved. Today I want to preach, and I, I will be preaching on that first part, the concerning the, the confirmation of sin. Next Sunday we'll deal with the second, concerning the genuineness of your faith. Confronting sin and church discipline is something that most Christians know should be happening but most Christians have not seen a healthy or a consistent model of how it should happen. And a more honest assessment of church discipline may be that many Christians have no motivation to faithfully participate in church discipline because you enjoy the lack of accountability in your church, and in your life. Understanding this passage and how to confront sin requires some understanding of some principles of healthy, godly discipline. So my sermon this morning only has two points, but, but I want to have an extended introduction because you need to understand these principles before you can understand the passage. So three principles of healthy, godly discipline. The first is, godly discipline is motivated by love. The lack of discipline indicates an absence of love and an absence of relationship. Now, no one enjoys discipline when it's being applied. The only enjoyment of discipline is long after it's been applied and long enough that you've enjoyed the fruit of it, but not the experience of it. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which you have all have in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I, I have my children have reached an age at which we're beyond we're beyond the toddler young stage, and we've had an experience where we've been out and about and some other children have been behaving in such a way that my kids have said, you would never have let us behave that way. And the truth of it is, I wouldn't have. But when we observe it in kids that are not my own, I don't, have a, I don't feel compelled to discipline them. They're not my children. I don't have to raise them. Neither do I have to be concerned about them. I don't discipline children that are not my own. But if you're my kids, you carry my name, Part of that is connected to discipline. So discipline, first and foremost, must be connected to love. Dear brothers and sisters, listen to me. If you're under the discipline of the Lord today, receive that as an act of love because only his sons and daughters does the Lord discipline. Discipline is motivated by love. Discipline is connected to worth. God disciplines his children so that they may bear the fruit of of righteousness. Later in Hebrews, the, the writer says, for the, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The more valuable and important someone is, the more discipline is required of them. If you value your children, if they're important to you, if you're concerned with how they turn out and grow up, then you have disciplined your children. If you don't care, doesn't bother you, then you don't discipline. Worth, discipline is connected to worth and value. It's motivated by love. And then maybe the most important one to hear. So if, you, if something else has gotten your attention this morning, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Discipline, godly discipline, is inseparable from and connected to church fellowship. Now, you and I might use the word church membership. I like fellowship because I think it communicates on a deeper level what church membership is, but in a practical sense, yes, church membership. Why is membership important? It's not important just that we can have a, a list and a number, but church membership determines who we're responsible to and who we're not responsible to. Like children in your household versus kids that just play in your yard and then leave, church membership is the definition by, what, by who we're in fellowship with and who, to whom we have responsibility to. Now listen, give special attention to this. There cannot be effective godly discipline without a connection to a church fellowship. The breakdown of church fellowship and an understanding of church membership is why there has been a breakdown of church discipline. For various reasons, church membership has, become, has, be, has come to mean little more than having your name on a list. And the most blatant evidence of this is that there is no relationship between being a church member and being a part of the church fellowship and attending regularly worship. Now listen, hear me very carefully. I've got some hard things to say. I'm not mad about it, but I want you to hear God's word faithfully this morning. 
There are various reasons, and there's lots of uh, uh, places we could point a finger. But friends, you understand I'm not making this up. There has been for a very long time no real connection between being a member of this church and any expectation of showing up at this church. The proof of that is when we go do visits, sometimes we'll knock on the door of somebody we've never met, and they'll say, oh, I'm a member of your church. That ought to bring us to tears. If the church does not enforce the most basic expectation of fellowship and membership, it cannot hope to confront other sins that are more serious. For many of you, you see coming here not as a participation in a fellowship, but as a product to consume. And frankly, friends, you can consume a product in many different ways. I publish a podcast every week of this sermon. If you want to, it actually may sound better. The audio quality is better. There's some production value that we add to it. You can listen to that in your car on, on the way to and fro. and those, You can consume the sermon. Right now, there are some able-bodied people that are watching us online. They're not here because they can't physically be here. They're just not here because they would have rather sleep in this morning and watch the service, consume the service in their pajamas than expend the expense of coming in the building and being in the pew with you. Now, before we shake or wag our fingers, many of you have participated in that as well because many of us have viewed what happens here not as fellowship, but it's something to be consumed. And you know, the thing about consumers are they can take it or leave it. They consume it when they want it. They put it away when they don't. Fellowship, membership has a connectiveness there, a requirement both to participate and to be part of it. Now, you may ask then, why preach this passage? Because I'm going to make the case over and over today that you cannot employ, you cannot, you, cannot, um, you cannot bring about what this passage teaches unless you're faithful to fellowship. And you might say, well, pastor, you've just said we are not faithful to fellowship. Then why would you preach this passage if you know the church right now cannot effectively obey it? And I would say to you, Faithful preaching holds up the Word of God even when it exposes areas of inadequacies and failures in us. I cannot only preach the passages that comfort, I must also preach passages that challenge us to live more faithfully and obediently to God's Word. I shared with a few of you this week as we've talked about this sermon and and what I was planning to preach, and I, I have said this to many of you. Listen, you need to understand you're hearing it fresh right now, but I've, having, I've had to live with this all week. <laughs> I've been preaching to myself all week, and now I share it with you. So from this passage, I, I want to share two basic points this morning. How to, how do we confront? So how to confront sin. I think we see a model here in how Paul is confronting sin within the church. And then secondly, a why. Why you must confront sin and the power in which you, you do it. But let's begin with the, with the how to. So Paul begins in the first couple of verses here, and he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. And, and, he, and he, 
he repeats something that would have been very familiar. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent. Now, if you're, if you're a, a Bible student, you may recognize the, the, the two or three witnesses. That's an Old Testament principle. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament legal code, before a charge could have any validity, it had to have more than just a single person. There had to be at least two or three witnesses. In the New Testament, we see that again with, when Paul says, listen, if you're to receive an accusation against an elder, pastor, or overseer, then that has to be, but, but in fact, you're to ignore it unless it comes from two or three witnesses. He says that here, applying that principle. So if we're going to deal with sin, it can't just be what a hearsay, it can't be what one person says. It has to be in a verified uh, testimony of, of sin in the church by a, a witnesses of two or three. And then he talks about warning. So how to confront sin? Well, I want to give some principles here. The first is that you must be humble and fearful. Legalists start from a position of pride and then proceed with pleasure to confrontation and condemnation. We've, we've all been around folks like that who genuinely enjoy confronting and, and exposing and calling you out in sin. The false teachers that, that Paul has been arguing against were, were employing harsh tactics the people were making judgments on the validity between the false teachers and Paul in part based on their judgment of how harsh they had been treated. It's an odd thing, but, but Paul is basically saying, listen, um, he, he's making the case that, listen, I'm not coming with harsh words just to be harsh. I'm coming with words of, of wisdom and truth that may be harsh, but not motivated out of a desire to be harsh. There's always been that sort of dynamic that sometimes we judge those who are meanest with more authenticity than those who are kind. But friends, Christians, brothers and sisters, living and breathing and working within the context of the fellowship, we must start with humility. And the reason why we must start with humility is that we are humbled by the knowledge that everyone in this fellowship has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen to me carefully. There is not a sin you will confront in another person that is any worse or that you, that, you have, that you have not been forgiven of on your own in your own life. So we start with humility knowing that we don't come from a position of superiority. We come from a position of sinfulness and flesh in ourselves. Christians find, no, find joy not in the confrontation or the arrogance of condemnation, but in repentance and rescue of a wayward brother or sister. So Christians approach the confrontation of sin relationally. You see, confrontation of sin and spiritual discipline cannot be effectively accomplished outside of church fellowship. Now listen to me carefully. This passage is not about how we relate to our unsaved friends, neighbors, family members. This passage is how we relate to one another within the fellowship of the church. 
This passage is not how we relate to the the visitor, the guest that comes among us but is not part of the fellowship of the church. No, this is part of those who have been called out, who have committed themselves into the fellowship and said, we are the testimony of Christ in this community as Central Baptist Church. So hear me very carefully. It has to be understood in the context of relation. We confront one another in the context of a relationship. And we proceed with fear and trembling, fear for the consequence and the destruction that sin will bring to the brother or sister in in our midst. Fear for the consequences and destruction that their sin will bring to the testimony and witness of the ministry of the church. And fear for the danger that sin is to our own soul. Jude tells us in verses 22 and 23, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. Thinking about how we understand that your brother, your sister sitting on the pew with you, their sin, your sin affects the whole of the testimony of the church. Galatians chapter 6 tells, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression... You, should, you who are spiritual should restore him to a spirit, in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, keep watch on yourself. Here's the fear for your own soul. Keep watch on yourself, least, lest you too become tempted. Bear one another's burden so to, so, so to feel, fulfill the law of Christ. Be humble and fearful. Secondly, warn often. The wickedness of our flesh creates a desire to see consequences to befall on others. So if you've got somebody at your, at your office right now or where you work that is lazy and does not do their job, there's a part of you that hopes the boss catches them and they get fired. You, you don't have to admit it. I know it's true. You've been covering for them. Their lackadaisical attitude, their, their, their bad work quality means that everybody else has to work harder to, to cover up for them. And, and there's a part of you that just secretly hopes, I hope at some point they're exposed so they're going to get what they deserve. That's, that flows right out of our flesh, desiring to see the consequence befall others that we, we determine that they deserve. But within the context of the fellowship, we work differently. Our desire and our hope cannot be that the destruction of sin would befall a brother or sister. Our desire has to be that they would be rescued from the destruction of sin. And so we warn often. Now, there's a testimony to this wicked desire of the flesh in our Old Testament in the prophet of Jonah. When I say that word, you probably know Jonah best because he's the guy who got swallowed by a big fish. Do you know the story? God had called him to go preach to Tarshish, but, but it was, a, excuse me, to, to Nineveh. And Nineveh was not, a, a, not a, a godly town. They were not God-fearing. They were pagans. And the prophet Jonah had no desire to see the pagans get right with God. And the story is that, that he fled the call of God. That's why God confronted him and swallowed with the big fish. But what's next is more, I think, more important to, to us today. After the, the fish episode, he does go to Nineveh and he preaches what can only be described as the sorriest, weakest, half-hearted sermon recorded in all of Scripture. It's a sentence long. Now, you would probably like that today. But here is Nineveh, this great city that was about to experience the full 
wrath of God poured out on them. Jonah goes through the city, a three days walk going, need to repent or God's going to get you. Now you would think, just imagine today, if you were to walk across Waycross, walk across um, Atlanta, Georgia, go to LA, walk across LA, these large cities, go walk across Washington, D.C. and preach a message like that. Repent or God's going to get you. Probably wouldn't expect much to happen, but by God's grace and his wonderful mercy, People heard the sermon, and from the people, the lowest all the way to the highest king, repented and began to humble themselves before God and say, what must we do to be saved? Well, Jonah, the great prophet, you would think would rejoice in wicked people turning to the Lord. But you know what Jonah does? He goes up and he complains before the Lord and he says, and this is what he says, I wish I'd never been born. What's wrong with you, Jonah? What was wrong with Jonah was he wanted to see the fireworks. He wanted to see the wrath of God poured out on people that he did not like. Friends, that cannot be the way the fellowship functions with one another. We cannot desire the destruction of sin because listen to me, the destruction that sin brings to your brother or sister will affect you and your family and this fellowship as well. And so we must warn often. We must over and over warn the destruction of sin and the consequence of sin. The testimony of one who desires repentance over destruction is an abundance of warning. And warnings begin with speaking honestly about sin and the destruction that it will bring. Now, the world attempts to minimize the ugliness of sin by referring to it with euphemisms. So parents, you don't talk about the sin and the rebellion of your children. No, you say they made a bad decision rather than they're living in disobedience and rebellion. And uh, young couples, instead of saying we are fornicators, you say, well, we're living together, trying to figure out if marriage is a good idea for us. Husbands and wives, rather than saying you're an adulterer, you say, well, we had an extramarital affair. Instead of talking about murdering and aborting babies, we talk about, well, it's family planning or reproductive health care. Listen to me carefully. You cannot confront sin unless you can identify sin. It's been years ago, but I had a couple in my, in my office, and um, you could rightly say of them that they were both, and this is hard to explain, but they were both at the same time fornicating and adulterers. And they had come to my office for pastoral counsel, wanting to know about joining our church and I, I said to them, I said, friends, you're, you're either a fornicator or an adulterer, and I think you're both. And before we can talk about church membership, you need to repent and get right with God. Now, what you would hope is that they would break, their, their hearts would be broken. They would get on their knees and cry out before the Lord. They stood up in anger and stormed out, and I have not seen them since. But friends, you cannot confront sin if you can't identify sin. Do you hear me? If you, won't be, if you will not be willing to call it what it is, you cannot confront it for its danger and its destruction. Euphemisms and other ways of obscuring the reality of sin confuse and distract. Now, let's be honest. If you warn brothers and sisters of their sin, you risk relationships with them. 
If you dare to warn a brother or sister about their sin, you risk losing their relationship. When confronted with, ex with, with, with exposure of sin, there are generally two reactions. We've already spoken about this in previous Sundays. Either you, you respond in anger and accusation against the one who, who has brought it to your attention, or you respond in humble repentance. And if they respond with anger and accusation, the reality of it is if you warn them of their sin, you may well lose their relationship. And the honest truth is some of you have valued their relationship or the, the peaceableness of that relationship over the eternal reality of their soul. Effective warning demands that you do not ignore sin. For a while, it is easier to ignore sin rather than confront it. This is where I live. I don't enjoy confrontation. I get sick to my stomach when I think about having to confront someone over sin. And if I had my druthers, if I had my way, I just would ignore it, hoping that somebody else would say something, hoping that maybe they would just get right on their own, hoping that it'll just get better somehow on its own. You ju we justify ignoring sin by hoping that it'll go away on its own or that the brother or sister will be confronted by some other means. Effective warning demands that you do not ignore sin. It demands that you risk relationships. It requires that you identify what it is. An effective warning is characterized by an appeal to repentance. You do not warn brothers or sisters about their sin because you enjoy the conversation. As a side note, if you find some joy in confronting sin, stop right now because you're not doing it right. If you're sick about it, scared, concerned, not wanting to do it, you're probably in the right mindset and heart. You don't warn a brother or sister about their sin because you enjoy the conversation. You confront sin and warn of its consequences because you desire that God would mercifully use your warning to lead the brother or lead the sister to repentance and restoration. The heart of one who warns anticipates restoration. An unrepentant brother or sister is, by definition, not in good fellowship with the church or with God. Can, can I say that again? An unrepentant brother or sister, by definition, is not in good relationship, in good standing with the church or with God. This should break your heart and drive you to warn the brother or sister in hope and anticipation that, they're that they would be restored to a right relationship with you and the church, but even more so a right relationship with our God. Be humble and fearful, warn often. And the third principle of how to confront sin is be holy. Christians are called to reflect the holiness of God. The church, the membership of the church should be a testimony to the holiness of God and what it looks like for the redemptive grace of God to be working in life. When you tell somebody, I am a member of Central Baptist Church, you're bearing a testimony. This is what it looks like for a redeemed believer to walk faithfully with the Lord. 
The church should be a testimony to the holiness of God. First Peter chapter one says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Friends, sin is a rebellion against the character, against the nature, and against the testimony of God. And the church must respond to unrepentant, rebellious sin with the appropriate seriousness, with the same seriousness that God responds to it. To protect the testimony of the gospel through the church. To protect the testimony of the glory of Christ. And for the blessing and protection of the believer. The church must respond to sin with the same seriousness that God responds to sin. If God will not ignore it, neither should we. So how do we confront sin? Well, we begin being, by being humble and, and fearful. We employ warnings often. And we strive for holiness in our own lives and in the lives of those that we are connected to in the fellowship. Now, secondly, this morning, I want to give you a case for why. Why we confront sin. And I want to begin with the foundational idea here is that because Jesus redeems, and, and if you're saved today, has redeemed you for holiness. Now notice how Paul turns the conversation in verse 3. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now, the, the end of verse 2 is maybe the harshest word, where he says, I will not spare you. In other words, listen, I, I will not refuse to call out sin in the church. That's a hard word. Beginning of verse 3, he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now, I think what he's referencing there is the Corinthians' fascination with the, the meanness, the harshness, the brutalness of the false teachers. And he's saying, I think he's what he's saying, if that's what you're looking for, I, I certainly can bring that. I, I won't spare you. But he's not appealing to his own ability to be mean and harsh. Notice what he says next. He is not weak. Now, he could have said, I'm not weak. He could have said, I'll bow up on you just as mean and bad and ugly as the false teachers. No, he says, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So who is the he that he is Christ? Friends, Jesus redeems, saves for holiness. The blood of Jesus purifies believers from all their sin. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In him we have redemption through his, Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. To rebelliously invite the, the corruption of sin into your life that has been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus is to rebel not against the church, not against your pastor, not against your family, your mom or your dad, your brother, your sister, your spouse. To invite rebellious sin into your life, listen to me, is to rebel against the one who saved you, Jesus. In the days of modern technology, one of the requirements of putting together the small trend, uh, um, computer parts now that are in so many of the devices we use require a clean room. 
Clean rooms are just rooms that have special filtration and those sort of things to reduce the particulate in the air. I just wanted to know this week as I was thinking about what it meant to be clean, what the cleanest room in the world was. It's a, it's a room in Germany. In this room, a cubic, air, a cubic, cubic meter of air contains a maximum, of, a maximum of only one single dust particle with a maximum size of 0.1 micrometers. And this makes the, the air inside that room 10 times more pure than any iOS 1 class clean room. In other words, it's 10 times cleaner than the cleanest rooms that most things are, 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 are made in. I don't know how much that room cost. I did find an estimate that most clean rooms, just general run-of-the-mill clean rooms, run about $1,500 per square foot. So I'm imagining the one in, in Germany costs a little bit more. And you, you can understand, you don't, you don't have to know anything about that room to understand. If you spent all that money and, and built all that infrastructure to get the room clean and to keep that room clean, nobody walks in there with muddy boots. That couch that's in your basement that when you hit the armrest, dust plumes up, Nobody's putting that in the clean room. Those work gloves that are in the toolbox of your truck, been rolling around back there for 15 years, nobody's using those to work on anything in that clean room. Because once you get something that clean, then it is immoral. It is beyond comprehension that you would willfully allow something that would corrupt sully, ruin the cleanliness of the clean room. Friends, when you sin, you sin against Jesus and you invite rebellious corruption into a life that has been cleaned by the blood of Jesus. Sin is rebellion against King Jesus and his lordship over your life. It is rebellion against God's kingdom and his rule. So notice again in verse 3, Paul phrases who will be dealing with those in rebellion and rebellious sin. In verse 2, he says that he will not spare them. But in verse 3, he says that he, that is Jesus, is not weak in dealing with them. His point, in confronting this sin, Paul may be the vessel but it is Jesus who is doing the confrontation because sin is against Jesus. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus gave himself up for the church so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish, cleaner than a clean room. Jesus gave himself for the redemption of the saints and the holiness of the church that work began on the cross and it continues today. If you are saved today, you have been saved for holiness. Secondly, because Jesus has redeemed you to be holy, he will not ignore sin. Our modern culture and many churches 
attempt to view Jesus only as a lamb under slaughter on the cross. Now, I like that image, and you ought to as well. It's a beautiful image. And, and the Bible uses that image of Jesus. He was like a lamb under slaughter, meek and weak, gentle, non-confrontational. Who's afraid of a lamb? That beautiful, once-for-all Passover lamb that was perfect without blemish, Jesus went to the cross on our behalf to be a sacrifice for your and my sin. It's a beautiful testimony. But don't stop there. Because that's not the whole entire full testimony of who Jesus is. And Jesus, indeed, Jesus did die hum, humble and in and, and, and weakness to offer a sacrifice for sin. However, the church does not worship a martyred leader. We don't worship a murdered leader. No, dear friends, we worship the risen Lord, the risen King, the risen Lamb who lives today. He was crucified in weakness, but he was raised in the power and the might of the living God. And he confronts sin. He works in the church today in that might and in that power of the resurrection. Jesus was raised to life in power to establish his kingdom and to build his church. That's why Paul says, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Sinning believers are confronted by the power of the resurrected, nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Jesus, listen, you can hide. You can be confident that the people sitting beside you on the pew and maybe even your spouse doesn't know the rebellious sin that is in your heart. But Jesus does, and he will not ignore it. And when the church is aware of it, neither should we. That's why we must confront sin. This month, 78 years ago, on August the 6th, history was changed, the world was changed. Because on that date, the United States dropped the first atomic bomb ever to be detonated in war. The blast of the bomb was equivalent to 15 kilotons of TNT. It created a one-mile radius of total destruction, four miles beyond that of fires and further destruction. The number that always gets me when I read about it is 70 to 80,000 people died with another 70,000 injured. It was a destruction and death on a scale never before seen in human history. And to add carnage to carnage and heartache to heartache and destruction upon destruction, three days later, the United States dropped a second atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki with equal destruction. For several months before August of 1945, the United States warned civilians in Japan of the coming destruction 
and devastating devastation that was coming by dropping 67 million leaflets across Japan. It was hoped that the leaflets would, would pressure the Japanese high command to surrender. If the people had known what was coming, surely they would have evacuated those two cities. Growing up, my family had a dear friend who was a, a young girl on Nagasaki the day that bomb was dropped. She lost friends and family members instantly. But you don't need to know anybody from there to know human nature. If you knew that was coming, you would evacuate the city. You've got anybody that you knew to evacuate the city. You would have put out a general call, evacuate the city. If the people had known what was coming, truly they would have pressured their leaders to surrender. But by most accounts, the people went about their days unaware of the destruction and the destructive force previously unknown to the world that was about to befall their city. In the years following, there has been a lot of debate about that bomb whether or not we should have dropped it. And there's also been debate on whether or not the warning leaflet should have been more specific about what was to come. The leaflets just simply said, there's destruction coming, there's devastation coming, but did not reveal the specifics of the bomb. At the time, there was some fear that maybe the bomb wouldn't go off as planned and it wouldn't have the shock and all that was intended to have. And this debate naturally flows out of a desire to warn of impending destruction, even of our enemies. Like an atomic bomb, sin is devastatingly destructive to the heart and life of an individual, to the well-being of a family, and to the fellowship of the church. Brothers and sisters, within the fellowship, we must confront sin. For the sake of our brothers and sisters, we must confront sin. For the sake of our own lives and well-being, we must confront sin. For the sake of the church, we must confront sin. For the kingdom of God and the glory of Christ, we must confront sin. Be humble and fearful. Mourn often and seek holiness. For the Lord our God is holy.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.